If you have a Bible, we are in Luke chapter 19. Um, my name is Matt Castro. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. One of the pastors here at Redeemer Fellowship Church. And uh, if you are new here, thank you so much for being here. Uh, our church was started in September of 2016 at USI. And we have been here for a few years here at this location. And we bought this building in the December of 2019 before COVID. And, uh, and so, um, um, so thank you for finding us and uh, thank you for joining us. Luke chapter 19. My voice is kind of rough this morning, so I've got this coffee in a hand. Hopefully it won't distract you, but I'll be sipping on this throughout this sermon. Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. I'm reading from the ESV. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, the uh, text will be here on the screen, and you can read along right there. But Luke chapter 19, verse 41 through 44. And when he drew near, Jesus, when he drew near, and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now that you are hidden from your eyes... For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Let's pray. So Lord, we are so thankful to be in the house of the Lord. We're so thankful, Lord, to, uh, to have air conditioning uh, by your providence, Lord, uh, by your grace. We can sit here in a, in a room that is cool and pleasant to be in and comfortable. We thank you for that. We praise you for your goodness. We praise you for your grace. We praise you for worship and music and singing together. We thank you, Lord, for time of prayer and time of confession and time of remembering that we are saved through the blood of Christ and that we have received the Holy Spirit, Lord. And because of the gospel, we are led to give and to be charitable, Lord. We praise you for everything that's happened so far in this service, and we praise you for what is to come. Lord, we pray for those who are sick. We pray for those who are away. We pray for those who are not with us for whatever reason, Lord. We pray that you would be with them, that you would heal those who are sick, that you would restore them, that you would bring them back to us. For those who are away and traveling, bring that you would bring them back safely. Lord, we are thankful for this church. We thank you for the people in this church. We thank you for the people you brought into this church. Only by your grace and by your spirit are they here. Lord, we thank you for that. We pray, Lord, that you would speak through this sermon, you would speak through this passage, Lord, and encourage us and challenge us in the way that you desire to do. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I apologize. Uh, we kind of go through the books of the Bible kind of verse by verse, section by section. And this particular Sunday, it's a very somber passage. Uh, we see Jesus crying and weeping and and so that is kind of the tone of the sermon, right? If you were to preach the sermon, it would be all like rejoicing and glad and, and positive, and it would be kind of missing the tone of the passage. So um, forgive me if this comes off a bit somber and, um, and sad, because that is kind of the, the tone of the passage. Um, the title of this sermon is The Dawning of a New uh, Dark Day in America. The Dawning of a New Dark Age in America. Um, and here's kind of a, a kind of an introduction. What were the uh, what were the dark ages? We, that, that was a term used by historians to talk about the early medieval age as a time of the dark ages. You may have heard that term used in history class when you were in high school or maybe in college, and they were talking about the medieval age. 
And uh, uh, there is a, 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 so a scholar of the, of the 14th century who, who, who actually came up with this term, the Dark Age. And he's, he used it to say that the, the time of, of his living, his, his generation, there was a lack of knowledge and culture. And this started after the fall of the Roman Empire. When the Roman Empire fell in the 5th century, it started this Dark Age where knowledge was lost and, and schooling was lost and academics were lost and culture was lost. Later on, more modern European historians describe the period between the 5th and 10th century as the Dark Ages. Unfortunately, now recently, historians have kind of gone back and said that that was an improper term, that that term was used kind of by, by people in like the 19th century and 18th century to kind of say that their age was better than the age before. Um, and they used that their age is better, their age is more enlightened, than the ages before. But actually, the, the early Middle Ages was there was a lot of learning. Charlemagne, Charles the Great, who was the king of France and king of the Holy Roman Empire, he loved culture and he loved literature and he encouraged learning. This was the time of the monasteries and the monks would copy and they would, they would protect and they would, uh, they would store up and, uh, large, uh, large bounds of literature and, 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 and academic writings. The ninth century was the, the rival of the Vikings, which caused literature and learning to suffer. So for you in here in this room that watched the Vikings show, uh, they're the reason why people usually call the late or the early Middle Ages the Dark Ages, because they came in and pillaged a lot of people, killed a lot of people, and burned a lot of literature. The Dark Ages was a, a title, while unfair to describe a period in history where knowledge was absent. In 1989, R.C. Sproul's and Table Talk warned of the dawning of a new dark age, which consisted not in the absence of knowledge, but in the absence of God. He wrote, It's a darkness produced by man, who, though, who although they know God, did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. The chief end of man is what? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But this dawning of a new dark age, the chief end of man is not to glorify God. Instead, it's to invent with darkened hearts that have nothing to do with God. Hence the use of the term, the dark ages, the absence of God. Sproul continues in his, his article, The Dawning of the Dark Age, when we trample on the flowers of divine dignity, we sacrifice our own. The cultural struggles of the 90s will surely reflect this crisis. Abortion will continue to divide the nation as the issue of the sanctity and dignity of human life will be debated. Laws will be discussed and acted not by appeals to the light of nature, but by the test of collective uh, proofs. Church and state issues will multiply. The state will become more jealous for its autonomy. Separation of church and state will progressively be more and more interpreted to mean separation of state and God. And some churches will capitulate. This is what R.C. Sproul said in 1989. He's he almost too close to the mark, isn't he? However, even in this dark age of suppressing the truth of God, Christ's church remains a witness of Christ's salvation for a time. It's important you remember that and, and hold on to that for a time. That God is using his church to make the gospel known for a time. And that time will eventually come to an end because judgment is coming. And that is kind of, that is the theme of this passage, judgment. People will 
listen and believe the gospel? Will people listen and believe the gospel of peace? Or will their hearts remain darkened? Will they continue to pass by gospel teaching churches on Sunday morning for soccer games, birthday parties, family get-togethers, sports bars? Will people continue just to pass the church by? They continue to just, yeah, we should maybe go there one day. But then they're off to family events and to sporting events and to other things. Let me put in some, uh, some uh, definitions of some terms before we get into the, the passage here. Number one is regeneration. What does regeneration mean? Uh, regeneration means is that a, a human heart is against God until God affects change in their life by the Holy Spirit. If God does not change someone's heart to worship him, a human heart will not worship God. It is only by the grace of God that someone would lay their life and believe and trust in Christ. Number two is God's wrath. Some, of, some people in the church and outside the church want to think that God doesn't have a wrath. He is very, God hates sin. And if you read the Bible, you'll see that God hates sin and that his wrath against, against sin is horrible, but also right and good and fair. And I think as Christians, as Americans, as people who live in our culture, we have to come to terms with the truth that God's judgment is coming, that God's wrath is coming. So the point, the main point of this passage, the main point of this sermon is that Christ loves the lost, loves unbelievers, but many will not know his salvation and they will be judged for their disbelief. And point number one, the, the kind of point A, the first subpoint, if you're taking notes or you're following along with the notes, is the lamentation of Christ. The lamentation of Christ. And we see this in verse 41. So Jesus has, has entered into Jerusalem. He has he's come. He's journeyed from Jericho to Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, uh, celebrating. People celebrated him as the, as the king who has come. Uh, they, they cried out, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in the highest, peace in heaven, glory in the highest. They, they proclaimed and, and shouted. And so he draws near, he sees the city. He continues to, to come closer to the city of Jerusalem. Let me give you some, some descriptions or some, some details, some background information about the city of Jerusalem. Obviously, you probably know where it is, right? It's a, it's a pretty important city. For especially for Christians and Muslims and Jews and the nation of Israel. You can journey and go visit Jerusalem today. You can see a lot of the sites that are in the Bible. It was known as the city of peace. Its first mentioning in the Bible is actually Genesis chapter 14, verse 18. Melchizedek was the king of Salem, the king of peace, and he was the king of this area, this of Jerusalem. The Jebusites were the people that ruled over Jerusalem during the time when uh, Joshua came into the land or when uh, um, some of the judges were judging over Israel. The Jebusites were a people who did not worship Yahweh, did not worship God, did not follow the law, but they ruled over Jerusalem, the city. David, King David in, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 5, took the city. He conquered the city. After Saul had passed away, after Jonathan had passed away, David was obviously the next king of Israel, and he took over Jerusalem. He pushed out the Jebusites. He then built his palace. He made Jerusalem the heart of his kingdom. That's why sometimes there's a confusion. Yes, 
Bethlehem is the city of David, but Jerusalem is also the city of David. He mentions this in 2 Samuel. Why? Because he chose Jerusalem to be the heart of his kingdom. He built his palace there. He placed the, the Ark of the Covenant in the city of Jerusalem, the permanent home for God to dwell with his, with his people. Solomon, King Solomon, the son of David, built the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the center of worship of God for Israel. Jerusalem was the, was the heart, was the center of the nation. And people would journey to Jerusalem to celebrate festivals and, and major events of their religion. Then when Herod the Great became king, this was right before Jesus comes into the picture. Herod was, was king of Israel and he ruled the nation and he made Jerusalem again the heart of his kingdom and he built a new palace for himself in Jerusalem. He also built a new temple in the city. He built a fortress in the city. Herod the Great wanted to, be, wanted to equal Solomon in his reign and his power. So that's why he focused on Jerusalem. That's why he built up Jerusalem. He built a fortress there. He built a palace there. He actually tore down the second temple, built after the exile, and built a new temple that rivaled Solomon's temple. And in that temple, this was a temple that Jesus would have gone to, the temple that Herod the Great built. There was a royal portico that was massive, and people would go to this portico and look over the city. And maybe Jesus, when he entered into the city, went to this portico before he enters into the temple and looks over the city of Jerusalem, the city of David, the city where God's temple was built. So Jesus arrives in Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, and it said that, that when, they, when Herod the Great had built his temple, he put so much gold on the outside of the building when the sun shone, shined on the temple that it would be so bright it would blind your eyes. He would say that the temple was like a mountain covered with snow due to being covered all over with plates of gold. The city of Jerusalem was a glorious city. Not only was there a lot of history and why it was really important to Jews, but it was a beautiful city. With beautiful buildings. I don't know if you grew up in the rural area, in the farms, and maybe you're scared to death of cities. I was a suburban kid. I grew up in the suburbs. And I love going to cities. I love going to cities. I, I love going to New York City, going to, to Broadway shows. Um, I loved going to Memphis when I lived in Memphis, and we would go down there and go to music concerts and go to barbecue restaurants. I always loved going to cities. When I was a child, uh, my, my grandfather used to take me downtown to D.C. and go look at the monuments. And if you've never been to D.C., the best way to get into the city is the metro, right? So when you ride the metro, you're, you're underground, and you take these long escalators, and then you reach the streets level, and then you see these buildings and these monuments, and you're just kind of like overwhelmed by its coolness, right? Its awesomeness. Being awed by the surroundings, the transportations, the shops, the people, the action, the noise. So if you love cities, you like that. If you hate cities, that scares you to death, right? But if you love cities, the noise and the sounds and the sights and the smells are great. I love, I love cities. I, I've been to a lot of cities in my life. I, I, I like uh, Stockholm, Sweden. I've been to Stockholm a ton when I lived there. Moscow. Moscow has beautiful buildings, really cool places to go. Uh, for y'all who've been to Nepal, Kathmandu is a very unique city sit in a valley. Cities, I think, are great 
And I would say that as someone who loves cities, there's a heart for a city, right? Uh, Tim Keller, you know, the pastor, a former pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, he talks about the love for the city, how much culture is in a city, how much action and how much, uh, how many people flock to cities to work and to live. And you see Jesus, he draws near to this important city. He's visited there initially when he was 12 years old, right? He's visited Jerusalem several times every year in his adult life. Jerusalem was a city that he had been to, that he may have interacted with many people at. He journeyed there from Jerusalem often in his ministry. The son of David comes to the city of David for the last time. And it says that Jesus wept over it. You have to remember, Jesus is not new to the city. He had been to the city. He has a heart for the city. Don't distract yourself. Jesus was human, right? He had been to the city. There's sights that he probably enjoyed looking at. And he weeps over the city, a city and a people that he loves. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to his own people. The Bible says that they would not receive him. He is the Lamb of God. This is the Passover. He is the Lamb of God. He is the Son of David. He comes into the city of David during the Passover, and he weeps over this city. He's the true man from heaven. God loves his people and sent his own son to her to deliver her from slavery to sin. He is the suffering servant who came to bring salvation to the people of Israel. And Jesus cries out in anguish. He is sad. This is not like a simple tear. He's weeping over the city. He is heartbroken. Why is he heartbroken? The passage kind of explains this. But Jesus takes on the, suffer, the, the, the crying prophet like Jeremiah who cried over the people of Israel, who cried over Jerusalem because of their wickedness and sin and the judgment that was about to come. And I think you have to remember that Jesus' mission, his task was to come and seek the lost, to proclaim the salvation of his father. And many of the people of Jerusalem rejected it. Don't, don't forget that Jesus is Jewish who visited Jerusalem quite often, loved the city, loved the people, came to save them, and they rejected him. How would that make you feel? How would that make you feel? Would you not be heartbroken? Would you not weep over it and the people? John Calvin writes about this passage. He says, There was nothing which Christ more ardently desired than to execute the office which the Father had committed to him. And as he knew that at the end of his calling was to gather the lost sheep of the house of Israel, he wished that his coming might bring salvation to all. This was the reason why he was moved with compassion and wept over the approaching destruction of the city of Jerusalem. For while he reflected that this was the sacred abode which God had chosen, which the covenant of eternal salvation should dwell, the sanctuary for which salvation could go forth to the whole world, it was impossible that he should not deeply deplore its ruin. He knew what was about to happen. He knew the impact and the, and the wickedness of the city, and it caused him to weep. Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Christ had compassion on the city, but he knows that they will not all receive him. He's full of emotion. 
The raw emotion of our Lord is invoked here, and he is sad because the city that he loves and the people that he loves who he came to save, not all will actually receive him. And because they will not receive him, God will judge the city. And that causes him to weep and to mourn and to cry. Don't forget that Jesus loved people. Jesus continues to love people. He loves you. If you are listening right now, know that Christ loves you. The sad truth is many will hear of Christ's love, but not actually believe it and also not receive it. Many will drive by here and never come to listen and understand the love of Christ. People will drive by churches after churches after churches after churches every Sunday morning to whatever they have to go to when the preaching of the gospel is actually being told and proclaimed, the love of Christ, and people will not listen, therefore they will never experience the love of Christ. And that should lead us to tear, shouldn't it? I mean, how many of you have prayed for people in your life? Or maybe if you, like, as pastors here at Redeemer, you've prayed that people in this neighborhood would come and hear the gospel, but they never come. It's not like it's hard to see it. It's not like the building's blind to them. It's not like the time of the service is blind to them. No, they see it and they do not care. They're indifferent. And Jesus, looking at the city of Jerusalem, knowing that they will not listen, that they will not receive him, that they will not believe him, causes him to weep and to cry. The second point is this. The way of happiness is hidden. The way of happiness is hidden. I think while the story of their destruction, how Jesus explains that, is terrible and haunting, I actually think this is the most haunting portion of this passage. And Jesus says here in verse 42, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Even you. It's an important part. Jesus says, even you. You're the offspring of Abraham. You're the people of the law. The citizens of David and Solomon's kingdom. Yahweh dwelled in your presence. All these advantages. Remember, it's not like the Jews didn't know any of this stuff. It's not like they were not told. It's not like they were not instructed by the prophets that Jesus was going to come, that the Messiah was going to come, and that it actually was going to come as a suffering servant riding on a donkey. I mean, it's pretty clear in Zechariah 9.9 that he was going to ride on a donkey, yet they didn't see it. They were blind to it. All these advantages. If you had known on this day the things which belonged to peace, if all the people in the world, you, even you, especially you, should have anticipated my arrival. You should have been excited about my arrival, and yet you did not see me. You did not believe me. You rejected me. You should have known my identity as the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the horn of salvation, the Son of David. You should have known. You should have known. You you should have known of my arrival. You should have recognized that I would bring salvation from God. I am the path of peace. Peace is a word that the Hebrews would have used for shalom, which means happiness and joy. That reconciliation with God was essential to happiness. Christ is the means for that reconciliation. Without Christ, you cannot therefore be happy, satisfied, or have peace at all. He is the path of peace. But due to their not believing Christ, this path of peace is, not, is now hidden from them. 
The way of happiness is right in front of their face, but they're blind to it. I mean, Jesus is walking into the temple, I mean, into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. God is bringing his salvation through him, and they're blind to it. The path of peace, the path of happiness, the peace of satisfaction is completely hidden from them. It's right in front of their face, and they don't see it. They search for this path blindly. They know their eyes, uh, they, they need their eyes open to their condition. People are looking for satisfaction and peace for their souls, yet they are missing the path of peace, which is in Christ. There's so many people in the world today looking for happiness, looking for the path of peace and satisfaction, and it's in Christ. They walk, they walk by churches, they drive by churches, they, they, they totally ignore the message of the gospel. It's right in front of their face. Their desire is to be happy. Their desire is to have peace. Their desire is to have satisfaction. Their desire is to have joy. And they are ignoring the path, which is in Christ. So sad. They're missing it. They remain frustrated. They remain anxious. They remain troubled. They remain afraid. They remain unsatisfied. They remain lost. They remain unhappy. This passage should hit home as Americans. There is no other country in the world that has more churches. What do we say? There's a church in every corner. That's in America. Bibles in abundance. If you've been in Nepal, Bibles are not in abundance. If you think Bibles are everywhere, that is not true. But it is true in the United States. You can go to Walmart and buy a Bible. Walmart sells Bibles. You have freedom to worship. You can go on right now. You can go on YouTube on your phone and listen to a gospel preaching message. And I would say, as Jesus says about Jerusalem, even you, you don't know. You should know. You should know. There's churches everywhere. The gospel is everywhere. The Bible is everywhere. You should know. You should know. But you don't know. The good news of happiness in Christ is hidden. This should make us weep. It should make us really sad. People are, are, people are frustrated. They're anxious. They have no peace. And the only way they would have that is through Christ. And Christ is everywhere. The churches are everywhere. The Bible is everywhere. There's messages of the gospel everywhere. And people are looking for happiness and hope. And they're blind to the path. should make us weep. Especially when we think about Americans, when we think about Hoosiers, when we think about people from Evansville. These are our people, aren't they? We share an identity. We share a heritage. These are our people. As Jesus shared an identity and a heritage with the people of Jerusalem, he wept over them. We should be mourning this reality. Many, many are blindly pursuing the wrong path to happiness, they do not know Christ. Many won't ever know Christ. And they will drive by every church on their way to sports bars, movie theaters, soccer fields, golf courses. They'll, they'll look at silly videos online, play pointless video games, read meaningless quotes, and ignore the, the, the person of Christ. They will ignore gospel messages about Christ. They will they'll ignore passages about Christ that will free them from their sin and hopelessness and place them on the path of happiness, and they will ignore it. 
going to whatever event they had planned, whatever family event they had planned, whatever soccer game or baseball fail game that one of their boys or girls have. They're always going and always busy, always looking for happiness, and they're driving right past it. And this truth is, is heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. They are surrounded by the truth of Christ, but they are blinded to the truth of Christ. The reality for many of our neighbors should lead us to mourn. Our mourning should lead to prayer for their souls because only by the power of God's spirit will the spiritually blind receive sight. And honestly, if you believe in this room that, that uh, uh, Facebook ads or a really cool service will save people's hearts, you should be ashamed of yourself. It's only by the power of God that people go from being blind to Christ to being awoken to the beauty of Christ. It's only by the Spirit of God. And shame on any churches that think that they can manipulate people to believe it. Or shame on people who use methods and giveaways as a way to change hearts. Shame on you. Shame. It's only by the power of God that blind people spiritually are given sight. The third point is this. The judgment of God is horrible. Jesus weeps over this city. He says, even you, you should have known, but yet this path is blinded to you. Verse 43, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. What is Jesus talking about? There's a reason why he's sad. There's a reason why he's weeping. There's a reason why he's mourning. There's a reason why he's heartbroken. Not only have they rejected him, but the consequences of their rejecting him and the salvation of his father through him is they're going to be judged. And I'm not talking in some like mystical way. I'm not talking about some like, some like uh, judge, you know, with individual consequences for individual people. Oh, the people of Jerusalem, the whole people of Jerusalem will suffer. And Jesus basically lays it out. And what he's talking about is in 70 AD, the Roman Empire destroys the city of Jerusalem. General Titus brings his 60,000 legion army into the city and destroys it to the ground. It was a four-month siege. They stormed the temple. It was described as the most hellish conditions known to man. If you have children in the room, you may want to close their ears. But a half a million starving Jews were inside the city during the siege. Thousands died, and those bodies were just packed. Dogs and jackals feasted on human flesh. 500 Jews were crucified each day. They ran out of space. They ran out of trees. I was telling Denton about this earlier. Wealthy Jews would swallow their coins as they tried to, tried to, to escape the city. And actually, because they were starving, their stomachs would eventually just burst. And Roman soldiers would discover money. So what they ended up deciding to do is basically stabbing all the Jews and actually searching their intestines for money. The streets were heaped with dead bodies left to right. No food. There was no food, so they ate leather. There was one woman 
who was, so, who was starving so much, she went, she went crazy. And she actually cooked her own son and ate him. And they came into the room, and she only ate half of them because she saved the rest for later. This is how horrible the conditions were in the city. Jesus knew what was going to happen, and it caused him to weep. He wept because they rejected him, and this is the judgment God put upon them. Jephesus, who was an historian, said, Like a wild beast gone mad, but for one of food, fell now upon eating their own flesh, eating actual people. The temple was burned, and 10,000 Jews died. The legions entirely demolished the rest of the city, overthrew its walls, its stones, None remained. None remained. It was horrible. If you want to read in more detail something similar, just read the book of Lamentations about when Jerusalem was destroyed in the time of Jeremiah. It's horrible. It's important that we have to also realize this, and this is the last point, that the judgment of God is fair. It's fair. Like, if you understood anything I said about the conditions, they were hellish. There's no reason in trying to argue that they weren't. They were hellish. They were horrible. If we had watched that on television, we would vomit. It was so bad. And we believe in the providence of God. We believe that God is in control of the world. It's not like God was asleep at the, at the wheel and the Romans just surprised him. No, this was, a, this was part of God's plan. The judgment of God is horrible, but the judgment of God is fair. It's horrible, it's certain, it's final, it's right, it's justified, it's fair. Fair because God created and he sets the terms. Humanity has failed to be obedient to him. He provided his son as the sufficient redemption for sin. However, you must receive him to be delivered. That is the only solution that is offered under heaven. It's Christ Jesus. If you fail to receive him, you will be judged by God. If you believe this to be unfair, which many people do, that's why pastors don't like to talk about the judgment of God or the wrath of God, because deep down they believe it's kind of unfair. Like, there's a reason why a pastor doesn't want to talk about this, because they actually believe that it's unfair. What power or authority or wisdom do you possess that you could counsel or advise God on what is fair or unfair? What are you? Who are you? God created the world. He created the universe. He sets the terms. It's fair because God is in control. And you, the Jewish people knew, they had known from the past, if they reject God, if they are disobedient to God, what would be the consequences of that rejection? Christ told the Jews over and over again about God's judgment, but they did not listen. Many people are offended and outraged by this truth, like the citizens of Jerusalem during Jesus' day, but your feelings won't save you. If you're outraged by this or offended, you know what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't save you. Your self-esteem won't save you. If you want to run out of the room because the judgment of God is spoken or the wrath of God is spoken— you can run out of the room, but it won't save you. It's not going to stop it from happening. Your feelings won't save you. Your self-esteem won't save you. Only Christ Jesus will save you from the judgment to come. If you don't have Christ, you will be judged. Not because you didn't feed the poor or volunteer enough at the hospital. 
or give to the right causes. That is not the reason that you'll be judged. Too many people have fallen into that trap thinking, well, if I just do these certain things, then I'll be good enough to God and I'll be accepted by God. You will not be judged because you didn't give enough to the poor. You will be judged because you rejected Christ. Same like Jews of Jerusalem. They did not know the time of Christ's visitation. God's judgment is real, it's horrible, and deserving. Please listen to me. If you're not a follower of Christ, do not, don't, don't look at your phone, pay attention, listen. If you don't accept Christ, if you don't put your faith in him, the judgment of God will come upon you and it's horrible, but yet what? It's fair and right and justified. Christ loves you. There's a reason why Jesus entered into the city and went to the cross for your sins. He was judged on your behalf. The horribleness of the cross is actually what we deserve, but we don't get it because Christ took it on for us. He was judged so that you may be free from judgment, but you have to receive Christ. You have to believe Christ. You have to trust Christ. And, you have to have, and then you have victory over judgment. You don't have to be afraid of God's wrath because Christ endured it for you. Christ loves you. That's why he wept over the city, because he loves the people. He loves the city of Jerusalem. He loves it so much, and he knew what he was about to suffer and endure, and they rejected him anyways. And it caused him to be sad and to weep. And he also knew what was the consequences of rejecting him. It was the judgment that then came. I think, I think one of the applications that I've kind of taken from this is my sinful underreacting to the lost. I sinfully underreact to their lostness or to their unbelief. That is, that is a sin. The lack of emotion, the way that Christ expresses here in this passage, I don't typically have. There's something missing. I don't, my reaction to the lost is sinfully underreacting. Not overreacting, I am sinfully underreacting. I am not moved to tears the way that I should. What would unrestrained emotion of compassion be like for the lost? What would it be like? You know what it would be like? You would, you would think about the people that you talk to and you interact with or people that, that you, houses that you drive by every day knowing that those people don't know Jesus and you would be full of emotion. You'd be full of sadness because they don't have Christ. Do we have compassion for the lost that Jesus expresses here? My sinfulness causes me to underreact to the spiritual lostness around me. I want to mourn as Christ mourned. Don't you? Don't you want to love and have compassion for the lost the way that Christ does here? So I want to encourage you to do something. I want you to take a few minutes to do this. I want you to reflect. I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to think about the people that you know that do not know Christ. And I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to give you a to react appropriately to that truth. To react appropriately. If you need to cry, if God has filled you with emotion and sadness, and you need to cry, do that. But as a next step to that, I want to encourage you to pray for them. Pray that God would move you to preach the gospel, speak the gospel to them. Or that God would save them 
Again, like I said before, it's not by your speaking or by some other method that they're going to come to know Jesus. It's by God's work through his church. God pouring his grace through his church to witness and to proclaim the gospel. So I'm going to let you do that. I want you to close your eyes. I want you to think about the people that you know, people that you work with, people in your family, people that are in your neighborhood, people that you see that you know do not know Jesus. I want you to think about them. I want you to ask God to to give you compassion for them, the way that Christ demonstrates here. And I want you to pray for them. And I will close this in prayer, and then Robert's going to come do a song. Think about these people. Pray that God would fill you with emotions for them. Pray that God would help you to reflect on God on His wrath and judgment on those who do not have Christ. This is a time of mourning. Mourning for the souls of those that we know who do not know Christ. It's a time of mourning. Lord, we ask that you would help us to react appropriately to the lostness around us, family members, friends, co-workers, neighbors, people that we see at coffee shops every day. More they, they probably drive by churches constantly. We may have invited, us, invited them to church and they've yet to come. Maybe we shared a, a sermon with them they've yet to watch. Maybe we encouraged them with a verse that they've yet to read. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with appropriate emotions as Christ demonstrates. That we'd have compassion on the lost. Wanting them to be saved. Wanting them to be transformed by your spirit. Wanting them to be renewed. Wanting them to know the path of peace. Lord, I pray that you would lead us to compassion and love for them. And may that love be led to action and care and boldness. Lord, I pray that you would give the appropriate reaction for this church to those around us, around this church who do not know Christ, who pass by this building every Sunday on their way to restaurants, soccer games, family events, never contemplating that they should walk into the door and hear about the love of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would give us a morning for them as well. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide them into this building, that you would pour out your love, and pour out your, your gospel, your good news, your path of peace to them. And Lord, that you would renew them and transform them. I pray that you would use the people in this building and people in this church Lord, to be witnesses of the gospel to those who do not have it. We praise you, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name.